Hello, I am Richard Booker, I am a haematologist in the West Midlands, England, and this is Don't Just Read the Guidelines. Don't Just Read the Guidelines is a podcast that explores ideas and research at the cutting edge of medicine, especially anything to do with blood. I aim to provide a platform to incredible people you probably haven't heard from before and share their work, ideas and opinions. We will take you beyond the guidelines and into the research behind them. And most importantly, into the sticky world of opinion and conjecture. You can subscribe to this podcast on your preferred platform. And don't forget to leave a review, as it really helps others to find the show. If you would like to come on the podcast or know someone else who would be great, please find me on Twitter, at Richard Booker. This is going to be quite a quick episode because I wanted to share with you a talk that I recently did at the British Society of Haematology annual meeting. The talk was given in a session called The Crucible, which was a competition based on an abstract and then a talk on a philosophical question. This year's question was, what current haematology practices would seem absurd to the haematology community in 2050? And this is my answer. If you were a pandemic doctor in 1347, you would probably have looked a bit like this. Here I showed a picture of someone in a plague mask. You would have been living in an age where life expectancy was less than 30, and medicine as we know it didn't exist. Indeed, you would have had an entirely wrong understanding of disease and how to treat it. But when patients survived after you'd treated them, you would have been buoyed by it. You would have been strengthened in your belief that your treatment and your philosophy were beneficial and that they worked. Q2020 a new mysterious virus emerges. Soon, people are panicking, and all sorts of medical quackery is emerging. This is a dire situation. No time for a trial. We need to save lives right now. Well, thank goodness for the recovery trial, and others which have saved countless lives. In the next few minutes, I'm going to explain to you how and why I think our current system doesn't work for patients, and what we can do to fix it. I want to challenge your thinking. I'm deliberately being provocative and I would love to debate this with you. I'm always open to changing my mind. To everyone listening, randomization is so obvious. So why did it take us so long to discover the randomized trial? And why, 70 years after the first proper randomized trial, is society now getting it so wrong? To try and answer this, I'm going to take you back in history, 275 years to 1747. In that year, James Lind, a Royal Navy surgeon, randomised 12 scurvy-stricken sailors to citrus fruit or a variety of other sketchy-sounding treatments. This is considered one of the earliest randomised trials, but despite the sailors that received citrus fruit recovering very quickly and being cured, Lind struggled to realise the importance of his findings. He ended up describing his own humour-inspired explanation of scurvy, that it was a digestive disease caused by blocked sweat glands. His belief in his doctrine was so strong and he couldn't see past his deep-seated view of how the world works despite his empirical evidence. The human brain hasn't changed really in 350 years. Heck, it hasn't really changed in 350,000 years. We're still prone to the same mistakes and cognitive biases as we always have been. Our evolved psychology does not accept that our lived experience could be wrong. We see and believe a treatment to work and we give it again. We tell our mates about it and they start doing it. And soon it's all spiraled out of control. And we're venusecting over two litres of blood in 12 hours from George Washington and hastening his demise. 
I think it's our psychological makeup that's the reason why randomization took so long to be invented. And it's one of the reasons why many modern trials don't do what we need them to. Then this susceptibility to cognitive bias is fueled by one thing, money. We all have patients where we think their outcome is going to be poor with standard treatments, and we want to treat them with something different, something better, perhaps something more toxic. As an example, until recently, I'd seen granular sites given to two patients, both in whom I was convinced they'd made the difference and saved lives. Then the third patient seemed to get an ARDS-like picture after several days of treatment. We stopped the granular sites. He got better. And it was in that moment I wondered if I was the plague doctor. There's only one way to know if treatments are better or worse than doing nothing. We have to randomize. We have to be extremely careful about using our current mechanistic understanding to justify using new treatments before we've tested them properly. The body is highly complex and we are likely to be wrong about many, many things. We have to, therefore, believe in testing and observing rather than theorizing, assuming and doing. So the principal problem as I see it is that we are using established, unproven therapies, adopting new therapies without proper evidence of benefit, fed by a broken trial system that is now designed to sell drugs rather than to elicit truth and a regulatory system that feeds it. The biggest offense to my mind is when we don't randomize at all, when we accept evidence from uncontrolled studies or observational studies as evidence of safety and efficacy to justify drug use and approval. This is well illustrated in the use in the world of DOAC reversal agents, where use is based on sketchy theory, preclinical studies and observation only. After a decade of using DOACs, we still have no randomized evidence showing clinical benefit for reversal. What's worse is that randomization has consistently been argued against as, un as unethical, an argument that to my mind ha only has one erroneous conclusion. We are 100% confident that our drugs are safer and better than doing nothing. So what's the point in doing the trial? This attitude completely fails to learn the lessons of history. And as Churchill said, those who fail to learn from history are doomed to repeat it. Then when we do manage to randomize, we've started using often meaningless surrogate outcomes. Progression-free survival is very often the primary outcome in comparative trials, but this is known to be an extremely poor correlative survival. Patients fundamentally care about length and quality of life. They care about being able to walk the dog, live life without pain, go to work, go on holiday, and live to see their children grow up. They do not care about marginal increases in their haemoglobin or slight tumor shrinkage that they can't see. Our current system makes drug approval quicker and easier, but this does not give us value for money. The average new cancer drug extends life by 2.7 months. We don't need more minimally effective drugs. We need drugs that are, that are transformative. So let's go back to the crucible question. What current haematology practices would seem absurd to the haematology community in 2050? I think that they will say that it's absurd that given what we know about the history of medicine, that we use so many unproven therapies and that we lost track of what's truly important in research. We lost track of the ultimate goal to extend life and to improve quality of life. We gave the drug companies too much power, too much access to patients and too much freedom. But the message is that over the next 28 years, we will recognize and correct that system. We are all strongly motivated by the desire to improve patients' lives. The good news is that we need tweaks. We do not need revolution. The single most important cause for optimism 
is that we already understand the importance and the simple beauty of randomization and what it can give us, truth. So here's how I think we can get there. Firstly, we have to talk, debate, recognize, and call out false, misguided, or sinister arguments from colleagues, patients, politicians, journalists, ethicists, and patient groups. It is an uphill battle because, as Brandolini's law states, the amount of energy needed to refute BS is an order of magnitude larger than to produce it. But it is a battle that has to be fought. We need to do more trials, trials of simple things, trials of things we do all the time but have no evidence, like lying down after an LP. Incidentally, there is a trial of lying down after LP and it found no difference. We need to do better trials, trials that measure meaningful outcomes. We need trials whose goal is to improve medicine and humanity, not just to sell a drug. The medical profession has to take back control of trials. Most head-to-head -head trials are run by pharma. This is like setting, doing, marking, reporting one's own homework. Rather than trialing their own drug, companies should submit their drug and funding to an independent trials group that designs and runs the trial. There will be intense resistance, but this will save money and save lives, and humanity will be richer. Some of you will be thinking, this guy is so naive, and you would be right. But naivety is freedom. It is the freedom to dream. I guess you might be thinking, where will all the money for all these trials come from? I think there's actually a fairly simple answer to that. Doing proper trials is extremely cost effective. The original Cancer Drugs Fund in the UK wasted £1.27 billion on drugs that didn't work. Before approving and funding treatments, we should wait for robust evidence of benefit. This doesn't even increase cost as the trials are often being done. That £1.27 billion could have been spent on 10,000 nurses, three and a half grand in cash for every single person who gets cancer, enrolling two and a half million people into trials, or on the care of over 100,000 refugees per year. As well as doing the right trials and waiting for them to report, trials can be much more efficient. Excitingly, we can do much cheaper trials, like registry trials, where a trial of over 7,500 people was recently done for $50 per patient, with zero loss to follow-up. We also have to make it easier to do research and trials. We need to have a tiered, streamlined ethics system and have templates for easy trial setup. It needs to be a lot easier for an average, non-academic clinician to ask a question and run a trial. There are so many good ideas. There is so much energy in our community. It has to be harnessed by tearing down barriers. If we can get it right, this can be immensely powerful. It should be the basic science and the drug discovery that's hard. We are at the mercy of nature. Our bodies are immensely complex and some diseases are really hard to treat and cure. But we are in control of trials and man-made systems. They need to not hinder us. So how do we get there? Well, we need to talk, debate and communicate our realistic ideas that could get us where we need to be. We should educate our medical students, trainees, patients and the public. We need to be more cautious about the influence of drug companies on our teaching and meetings. And we should have more sessions like the Crucible. We should make critical appraisal of core competency and test it properly in our exams. Finally, we should go to our departments and evaluate our practices, identify the things we do with poor evidence and consider stopping them. So come with me. Imagine that if you spent 40 years working as a doctor and at the end of your career, evidence emerges and it turns out that most of what you did was pointless or harmful. How would you feel? This is a real problem. It's likely the high proportion of medical practices are no better than doing nothing. So 
Let's advocate for better evidence. I've no doubt in my mind that the most powerful medical advance in the last 100 years is the randomized trial. We have to do everything we can to not let that get lost. If we can become re-enlightened, we can save and improve more lives than any new targeted drug or cellular therapy could ever hope to do. Don't just read the guidelines is for education and entertainment only and should not be taken as medical advice. I certainly cannot guarantee the factual accuracy of any of the content, but if you do have any constructive criticism, please find me on Twitter at Richard Booker. If you like the show, please take the time to write a review on iTunes, Google or wherever else you listen. It will really help others find the podcast. See you soon.